All right, hello, welcome back. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your Star Trek parody, speculative fiction, book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode is about the novel Red Shirts by John Scalzi. This was published in 2012. And yeah, this is another surprise bonus episode that you did not know was coming because it was commissioned by one of our very generous Patreon supporters. I want to say thank you so much for that. And really, thank you for giving me the impetus to finally read this book that has been on my list for nearly a decade. I've been embarrassed to say I've never read this book. And well, now I don't have to say that anymore. And I am also not alone today. Today, I've got with me Valerie Hoagland, who is my co-host on Lower Decks, our Star Trek podcast. Valerie, welcome to ATOS. Why, thank you. I will take any opportunity to talk about Star Trek, so (laughs) I am uh, very happy to be here. Yeah, the the decor here in ATOS is slightly different than in Lower Decks, though. Yeah, different plants, slightly different fish. Things have mildly different names, but kind of also mean the same thing. So I hope you'll feel comfortable. Yeah, I think I know what I'm doing, but that's (laughs) usually the amount of confidence I have in myself anyway. So it's fine. (laughs) We're all just ensigns in this world, I think. Well, we've got uh, a lot on our agenda for this episode. We're going to start, though, by orienting ourselves, also orienting listeners, I suppose, with a little discussion of the plot. And uh, we'll just kick this off, Valerie, by having you read the description of this book that's on the edition that you've got. Oh, right. Okay, here we go. It's a very intriguing start. They were expendable until they started comparing notes. Ensign Andrew Dahl has just been assigned to the Universal Union capital ship Intrepid, flagship of the Union since the year 2456. It's a prestige posting, and Andrew is thrilled to be assigned to the ship's xenobiology laboratory, with the chance to serve on away missions alongside the starship's famous senior officers. Life couldn't be better. Until Andrew begins to realize that, one, every away mission involves some kind of lethal confrontation with alien forces, two, the ship's captain, its chief science officer, and the handsome Lieutenant Kerensky always survive these confrontations, and three, Sadly, at least one low-ranking crew member is invariably killed. Unsurprisingly, the crew below decks, ooh, interesting below decks there, avoid away (laughs) missions at all costs. Then Andrew stumbles on information that completely transforms his and his colleagues' understanding of what the starship Intrepid really is, and offers them a crazy, high-risk chance to save their own lives. I think the thing I love most about this uh, this descriptive blurb on the the back of the book here is how 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 much they are trying to not get sued by Star Trek. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, that's actually it was really hard to read it without pausing and laughing at every opportunity of the Universal Union, um, which is clearly the United Federation of Planets, or uh, what do they call what do they call it space? <laughs> what do they call Starfleet? Uh, they call it the Universal the UU Navy. Oh, interesting. Okay. So yeah, the UU Navy or the W as we will come to know it, which is interesting because I am uh, an alum of the UW in <laughs> Seattle. So that took some getting used to. But yeah, the capital ship Intrepid, the flagship Enterprise would be the comparison here. Below decks instead of lower decks. Yeah, they're really, really trying. Yeah. And, and, and away mission was in quotation marks. So I guess you don't have to put like a copyright or a trademark logo on it or something. Yeah, very strange. But obviously, that is all very much a Star Trek parody, though I think what's interesting also about the the way that this book is marketed is 
that all of that description there, the stuff that is the Star Trek parody, is actually only one part of the book. Uh, there are two parts to this book. The first part is that Star Trek parody that is, you know, two thirds of the length of the book. But the the second part is not the Star Trek parody at all. It's much more meta. And in fact, because of that, we're actually going to treat those two different parts separately. So we're going to tackle the first part as if it is all that the book is. And then we'll, we'll take the thing more holistically at the end, which is obviously also what the marketing department of this publisher has decided to do <laughs> as well. So we're going to walk through the plot in a little bit more detail than, uh, than, than the, you know, please buy this book description that we've just read. So yeah, we are on board the flagship of the Universal Union, right? It's the starship Intrepid here. And we do follow the the point of view of one character. It's this this ensign who's just been assigned to the ship. So Valerie, can you tell us a little bit more about this ensign, about Andrew Dahl? Yeah, Dahl is our, he's our protagonist. He's our main protagonist throughout the whole novel. I characterized him when I was prepping for this as a plucky young ensign, <laughs> um, newly assigned to the Intrepid. Um, and... You know, he's our main red shirt, and we'll probably take a moment to explain what a red shirt is. He's our main red shirt, and the red shirt here is a reference um, that comes from what was happening on uh, TOS, the original series, the first iteration of Star Trek, where invariably, you know, um, some combination of the main crew members would go on an away mission, and there would be somebody in a red uniform as opposed to the other colored uniforms that other main characters were wearing, and he, you would meet him for like two seconds, and then he would die, and the, the death is never addressed, but it happens like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Some guy you don't know always dies on an away mission. And so this in kind of this, the Trek fandom, these people are referred to as red shirts. You don't want to be a red shirt. It does not mean that things are going to go well for you. So but this book follows exclusively the tale of red shirts, more or less. And Andrew Dahl is our main one. He kind of is what ties all the other red shirts together. Everyone hangs together around him. They all know one another through him. Um, and they are encouraged to drive the plot forward through him. Um, he's got that uh, nice guy, one of the good ones vibe. And, uh, you know, other characters are a little bit more harsh or more edgy. And he is not. He's wholesome, I guess, might be the word for him. No rough edges, just kind of a hero guy. I mean, yeah, he would definitely be in Gryffindor, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, you, you you threw me an easy question there, but now I really want to think about that. <laughs> Can we do a sub-episode where we just sort everybody in this book? I mean, yeah, I want to do a sub-episode where we sort everybody in every book ever. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm I'm there. I mean, we should actually do that for a Star Trek show at some point or all of Star Trek at some point. <laughs> all right. We're quickly doing this thing where while we're recording an episode, I brainstorm 10 different episodes that we should do. <laughs> And, and then yes. we'll make us do a year from now. All right. So let's uh, we'll carry on here. So so, yeah, Dahl realizes that, hey, there's something weird going on this ship in the red shirts here die way more frequently than they really ought to. And then they do in other ships in the in the fleet and that the old timers have devised a number of systems to actually avoid going on away missions, especially away missions with the, the bridge crew, because everyone realizes that that is almost certainly going to lead to death. And so we do get a big chunk of 
story here where Dahl and, and some of these other Ents and some of these other red shirts have some pretty crazy adventures. These involve things like killer robots. There's a plague of some sort. Uh, there's a diplomatic escort mission that goes all wrong as this aggrieved acquaintance from the captain's past tries to blow everybody up. A lot of crazy stuff going on there. Yeah. And if you are a fan of Star Trek, this will all feel very familiar to you. It really isn't difficult to write a parody of the genre because in some ways the genre is already a parody of itself. Those examples, the killer robots, the plague, the diplomatic mission gone awry, those are actual plots right. to like hundreds of actual Star Trek episodes. So it, you know, the, the book is showing you kind of how inflated um, and nonsensical that is, but that's just like a normal plot structure that we're used to as Trek viewers. Yeah, and in a little bit, we'll go through that in some more detail, just sort of pinning down the 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 real, like the, the, the specific Star Trek parallels that we get in this book. Because, you know, that's, I mean, that's a huge part of the fun. It's kind of, you know, they're Easter eggs, I suppose, of a, of a sort. And that's a, that's a huge part of the fun of reading this book. So let's talk about some of these other ensigns here, even though Dahl is our real protagonist. There are some other characters here who I think are, are interesting. We meet pretty early on in the book. We meet Ensign Maya Duvall, who is snarky, assertive. She's really competent. And she seems like when we first meet her, she seems like she's going to be the love interest for Dahl, but then is not. Uh, she's very much in control of her own sex life. She's very sex positive, though I will say that still her role in the plot here is that she's having sex with someone on the bridge crew, someone they're going to need to help them. But she feels very much to me like a kind of stock character from a science fiction TV show circa 2010. Yeah, I was wondering in prepping for this episode whether or not the book would pass the Bechdel test. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think probably there's some interaction between some female officer and Duval that allows that to happen where they're talking about something sciencey and not a man. But yeah, we'll talk more about Duval later and, and how I feel they handled really the, the book's only main female character. Well, who are some of the other characters, Valerie? Yeah, so we have four other main ensigns, and it can be kind of hard to keep track of them because some <laughs> of their names sound really similar. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't get um, like robust physical descriptions of them, so it can be hard to separate them in your mind as you're reading. But real quickly, we have Ensign Finn, who we might get a first name for, but I don't remember seeing it, who is often paired with Ensign Jasper Hester. So Finn and Hester come as a pair in the beginning of the novel. Uh, we meet them when Dahl's waiting to get uh, on his shuttle up to the Intrepid for his first day. And Finn, he's our, our rough around the edges kind of cool guy, always maybe getting into trouble character. Um, he shows up, you know, being watched by security forces because he may or may not have drugged purposefully, but also maybe accidentally his last captain. Finn's main role is to be the edgy, wacky, cool one who always has some weird supply of drugs right when everyone might need them. And he's also the only red shirt of our main group of red shirts to actually die in the novel, which he does protecting the captain from that assassination attempt on the diplomatic mission gone awry that you already mentioned, Glenn. And then there's Hester, who for a lot of the novel isn't really doing anything. Um, he's just kind of there. He's Finn's friend. He's a floater, doesn't have a lot of purpose and means well, um, but ends up being really important to the plot in the end. And then we have Ensign Jimmy Hansen, who is Dahl's best friend, comes from money, super rich dad. 
we're meant to see him as kind of like a no-nonsense, maybe a little bit of a loner, very discerning when it comes to reading people who his whole life have been after his father's money. Right. So we've got two characters whose last names begin with D and two whose names begin with H. And yeah, that is not easy to keep track of. That would that, that would be like my primary note. <laughs> you know, if, if Scalzi yeah. had been in like a writing group, it would have been like, there are, there are 26 letters. You can use them all. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to keep track. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do like most of these characters. They get fairly fleshed out. And I do think that there is something to Finn where he's really kind of meant to evoke Huckleberry Finn, actually. In fact, it, the, the way that you were describing him sounded very much the way someone might describe Huckleberry Finn, except for, you know, the specific drug references, I suppose. But if they had been <laughs> other shenanigans, would have been straight out of straight out of Mark Twain. But there is another person on the ship who's very important. And this is someone, the someone who has figured out what is really going on here. And this is Jenkins. Tell us about this guy. Yeah, so this is Officer Adam Jenkins. He is described to us, we actually get more of a physical description of him than almost anyone else in the entire novel. Um, You're meant to picture, uh, I don't know, a guy who hasn't shaved in a long time, um, scraggly, who's been like living alone in a tiny dark (laughs) apartment um, and hasn't talked to anyone and has made friends with robots, right? Like whatever image comes to mind for that, that is Jenkins. He's a widower, which we find out um, about in the middle or third into the novel. And he had a breakdown after his wife died. His wife was a red shirt who died. And since then, he's holed up in a secret compartment on the ship where nobody can find him. He cannot be asked to go on any away missions. And he's super good with tech. So he's using this tech to help the old timers on the ship know when the senior officers are coming so that they can avoid going on away missions too. And in exchange, they kind of like leave him alone (laughs) and don't ask him to ever do anything. He's kind of our everyone thinks he's struggling with his sanity, but really he's the only one who knows the truth character. And he has like kind of a big emotional moment at the end of the novel where he is able to kind of heal from the pain of his loss. But basically, you know, he suffers a breakdown to advance the plot. He does, though I think there are a lot of ways in which Jenkins, although he's not the protagonist of of the story in the sense that he's the person doing the the acting, taking the, the action, taking the lead action role here, this is kind of a book about him. Though we don't realize that until we're at least halfway through. But yeah, to use the language of Star Trek, right? Jenkins is living in the Jeffries tubes. Like that's that's what's Correct. happening. He's hiding out in the Jeffries tubes. He's found a way to delete himself from the roster. And he's really just using his time on the ship as a kind of, uh, you know, hideout as a kind of weird stowaway to try to figure out what happened to his wife or what, you know, why it happened and then to prevent it from happening to anybody else. And of course, what he has figured out is super crazy. What he's figured out is that all of them, all of these people we've been talking about, everyone on the ship, everyone in their world are actually characters in a TV show from some time in their past, roughly 2010. This does turn out to be literally true. Dahl and the other red shirts, not Jenkins, but the other red shirts that we've talked about, they decide to travel back in time. They do this, you know, according to the rules of their own fictional universe, and they end up in Hollywood. Around 2010, <laughs> uh, they've got some complaints for the producers of the basic cable TV show, Chronicles of the Intrepid. 
And this scheme here, the, the going back in time, this also requires that they kidnap one of the bridge crew. Uh, it's Kerensky. We're going to talk about the bridge crew at greater length in a little bit, but this is Kerensky. This is the person that Duvall is in a sexual relationship with. The rationale here, of course, is that bringing Kerensky along will guarantee their safety because the writers don't kill off major characters. So basically, he's going to provide them with plot armor. Now, of course, they've all got doppelgangers back in our world, you know, what we would think of as being the real world, because they all look like the actors who play them on the TV show. And the most important of these resemblances, or most important for the plot, is that one of them had been played by the son of the executive producer, who here in the real world is now in a coma and is never going to come out of it. But this is actually where the Ensigns can help, because if they leave behind the one of them who resembles the producer's son, he will eventually become that person simply because that's how it works in this fictional universe. There's like two whole chapters about that. We're just going to blow past it, though. But then also the reverse will happen if they take the producer's son back to the future with them. And so here's the deal. Once they are back in the future, they are at the whim of the show. So maybe, you know, you could just write an episode about the miraculous recovery of this ensign, right? And then also, hey, maybe not put all of us in so much stupid jeopardy anymore. That would be awesome. Thank you. And so this plan works. The Intrepid continues on its ongoing mission just now with fewer fatalities. And that's how this Star Trek plot, Star Trek parody plot here comes to a close. So we'll, we'll check in with what's happening in the uh, the remaining hundred pages in a little bit, because we're just going to we're going to treat this as a Star Trek parody for a little while. And maybe to, to start tackling this as a Star Trek parody, Valerie, let's talk about some people we have not talked about at all yet, which is the bridge characters. Who do we have here? Right. So, you know, in thinking about the bridge characters, I don't know about you, Glenn, but for some reason, I just had TNG, Star Trek The Next Generation, the, ah. the second big iteration of Star Trek that was on the air in the late 80s and um, early to mid 90s that then gave birth to a bunch of other Star Trek. I had TNG in my mind when I was thinking about these bridge characters, and it might be fun to talk about at some point who you thought everybody's analog was as you were reading, or if that's even a thing that you were doing in your mind as you went through. Oh, it totally was. But yeah, I think we're going to have different answers for this. That's real interesting. Yeah. So we have our captain of the ship and it's, you know, so interesting that these are ancillary characters to our perspective. If as, you know, a Star Trek viewer, you're used to them being the people you're always following. But we have Captain Lucius Abernathy, who is <laughs> definitely a Slytherin now that I say that out loud, um, who seems kind of like a self-involved doof. I don't know really how else to explain him. Maybe you got a different vibe. Then we have the main science officer, King, who I think is supposed to be Vulcan, um, but ends up reading a little bit maybe more clueless. Um, and then we have Chief Engineer Paul West. Uh, I love the line where they say, they describe him by saying, stuff always seems to be blowing up around him, <laughs> which is extremely accurate for a uh, chief engineer on a Star Trek show. So then we have Astrogator, which I think they just mean helmsman or navigator of the ship, guy who flies the ship, Anatoly Kerensky. And this guy, for me, well, maybe I'll hold back on the analogs, but... Uh, you know, he flies the ship and for some reason I think of him as a first officer, but he's not. And then we have medical officer Hartnell, who 
meh? We're like never told anything about. <laughs> yeah, the doctor does not really matter all that much in this story. It feels a bit like Discovery in that in that sense. Yeah. And like we never know who the, the chief medical officer is over on Discovery. But yeah, Kerensky, I mean, that's the one that is, well, I, I think King also, but Kerensky is super on the nose. That's Chekhov. <laughs> That's who that's that's who that's supposed to be. They have the same job. Chekhov is the navigator in TOS, which is slightly different than the than the helmsman. Uh, but yeah, he's Russian. Chekhov is Russian. He's meant to be kind of dim witted, but also uh, have a, a lot of relationships with a lot of different women, which also is supposed to be Chekhov. Though I think we're all a bit incredulous about that when we watch the show now. But apparently, he was a heartthrob back in the sixties. At any rate, really? And so yeah, yeah. I mean, they brought him on to be the the young sexy guy, right? Because Chekhov is in addition to the TOS crew, the TOS cast in the second season. Wow. 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 Interesting. That kind of blows my mind. I got, you know, I think <laughs> now that you say that it's obviously Chekhov and I'm not going to argue with you. Wait, um, what were you thinking? But I, I had written down that he seemed to me like a combination of Bones, Kirk, Riker and Malcolm from Enterprise. Oh, wow. No Tom Paris in there. No, no. Didn't get Tom Paris vibes, to be honest. Yeah, I didn't really get Tom Paris either. I just could not unsee Chekhov here. So I just even in my mind had him with that the stupid monkeys haircut that that, that Chekhov has because that's what <laughs> you know all the young hip people had in the in the mid nineteen sixties. Yeah, to me in my head he was Riker. Like there was something there's something about Chekhov's stature that didn't add up to what I was thinking of this character in my mind. Chekhov's kind of a a, a smaller, slighter person. Riker's this like you know, taller kind of like, um, I don't know. Yeah. Barrel, che- barrel chested. He's, you know, yeah. Jonathan Frakes is a, he's an, imp- he's an impressive, an impressive figure. Yeah, for he's sure. Imp- yeah. He, he towers over ch- many a chair. <laughs> well, cause I think Kerensky is presented as being a little bit of just kind of like a meathead. I suppose, but, but I guess I was thinking of him as like, he does seem like smooth enough to win people over. And so maybe that's where I was getting those Riker vibes from. I mean, Scalzi does a really good job of of not one for one in really any of these characters, right? There are enough tweaks that it works, right? None of them map on completely with maybe, I think, the exception of King, who uh, to me really definitely was Vulcan and is the Spock character here. But yeah, you didn't you didn't really buy that as much. It's a parody novel, right? And they're definitely really aiming a lot of that comedy at the bridge crew. Like we're meant to now that we are looking through the eyes of the lower decks characters, right? The ensigns. I think we're meant to kind of be making a lot of fun of the bridge crew and to be pointing out the ways that they are ridiculous and don't necessarily make any sense. And because of that, they all end up coming off kind of clueless, um, or or silly, or like they're making decisions that don't make any sense. And it's hard in my mind to square a Vulcan character. I mean, you definitely get that King is kind of cold in the way that he speaks, or, or maybe the better way is just to say like, not emotion forward, which is like the biggest clue. Plus, he's a science officer. So those are your clues that he's right. supposed to be Vulcan. But you know, he doesn't have that like, extremely sharp logic and um, cutting intelligence because of the way that we're meant to be making fun of him. 
Right, because when we see that from these lower decks characters or below decks characters, sorry, we don't want to get John Scalzi suit here. <laughs> when we see him from the perspective of of the ensigns of the red shirts here, the 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 thing that Spock does, which is you know to always swoop in at the last minute to you know look at some readouts and uh, point out where the person who's brought them to him has made some stupid mistake, some totally obvious error. But of course, you know the way that. The, the show operates is that only someone as smart as Spock would have seen that and they needed him to save the day there. This book makes fun of that, right? Where the, the people, right, the officers who are doing the actual work that they're bringing to King really do actually know what they're talking about and King does not. And it's simply the fact that they're actually in a TV show <laughs> and don't know it that gives King this kind of power to say something stupid and for it to turn out to be somehow miraculously true, even though that defies all of the actual like laws of science and so on that everyone is normally with. And so, yeah, it's to point out. And so, and so, yeah, it's really looking at Spock as if all the things that are awesome about Spock are actually really dumb and annoying about Spock. Right. And I just like can't handle someone coming for Spock like that. Like right. <laughs> I will protect him at all costs. Well, so were you envisioning Spock or like Leonard Nimoy when you were reading this? Honestly, you know, I think I was thinking actually a little bit more of Tuvok. And maybe if um, if I think about it real hard, I don't remember this character's name, but there is another Vulcan who I think actually is, I don't know if in universe he is the same character, but he's in the Lower Decks episode of Star Trek The Next Generation as a Vulcan. And then he ends up on Voyager, I think as the character that goes through Pon Far right. with Bellana Torres. Um, and that guy fit into the map for King because you, he's not a super likable guy. Yeah. I So I 100% was envisioning Tuvok as well. Like King to me is just is played by Tim Russ, even though I know this is supposed to be Spock. The way that the dialogue was written felt way, way, way more like I think the writers on Voyager write Vulcans than the way the TOS writers write Vulcans. Uh, that's interesting. I'm, I'm actually really glad to hear that you had the same experience because I, I thought you were going to mock me for this, like for the rest no. of our lives. But that's it, it's fascinating to think about how we both came to that to that conclusion. But you know, I like Tuvok. I respect Tuvok a little bit more, which is why I downgraded it to <laughs> other guy. <laughs> All right. Well, so the thing I'm most interested in here, Valerie, is that you have said that you you mapped this onto TNG, which actually we've not really done too much so far, except for maybe thinking of Kerensky as at least in part informed by Riker. But so you must be envisioning Captain Abernathy as Picard? Yeah, I don't know why. And it was really hard to do. Actually, I think the captain was the least fully formed person because yeah. I really like all of our captains. So it makes sense that he's Kirk, right? Like if I'm going to like make fun of a captain, it's going to be Kirk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think Abernathy kind of ended up just being a blank slate in my mind. It's probably worth mentioning that I'm currently in a TNG rewatch. <laughs> so it's probably just seared into my brain right now because I am watching it literally every day. But I definitely thought of the chief engineer as Jordy. And when the medical officer, even though I think um, Hartnell um, is a man in the novel, whenever we got dialogue from him, I heard Beverly Crusher's voice. <laughs> I mean, this is how it works, right? And we're actually pretty far from the last time we did a TOS episode on, on Lower Decks as well. I mean, further from Enterprise, which is always going to be the case, I think, but pretty far from, from TOS. We've done a lot of DS9 and Voyager and some TNG lately as well. 
But I think that probably what led you to to thinking of Picard is the the name, right? Because it's Jean Luc mm-hmm. Picard, and then this is Lucius Abernathy. I mean, this is just not a name. It's not Jim Kirk, right? Which is just like bam, one syllable, bam, another syllable, whole name. You know, like that's that's Kirk, right? And this is like a sort of more florid name with multiple syllables. It seems more elegant, right? Yeah, it seems like you know he was doing Shakespeare at the Globe. <laughs> Well, he was certainly trying to do Shakespeare like in the prologue here. Maybe we should talk about the prologue, which we left out of the the recap, because this book really opens with uh, a sort of teaser prologue here that is essentially the opening of a TOS style episode where the the deal is that our, our bridge crew really, you know, what matters here the most is that we get the captain, and then we get King, our Vulcan character, whether it's Tuvok or, or Spock or, you know, the guy who had Ponfar in Voyager, whoever that's supposed to be. They're down on the planet. They've got some red shirts and a lot of stupid mistakes are made and they, they end up being attacked by, uh, you know, basically, I don't know, the sandworms from Dune, essentially, except like a sort of smaller version of that. And red shirts die. And it's really prologue just shows us how self-involved and kind of stupid and certainly utterly ignorant of any kind of safety regulation and without a lot of ability to plan and a terrible leadership and lots of assumptions, right? This is how we see the bridge crew operating in this prologue. And it really sets us up for realizing, oh yeah, this is going to be a parody. I mean, of course you thought of Dune. I thought of Tremors. (laughs) That's actually better. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, I was actually really confused by the prologue because the names are hard to keep track of in the prologue. And then we don't get a lot of those characters again. (laughs) So And then we have to learn a bunch of new names. And so I think I spent the first maybe 60 pages of the book pretty confused just trying to orient myself. But I think if you take kind of the name problem out of it, the prologue was really fun and cool. And I liked the idea of setting us up on this little like, yeah, um, opening teaser and then seeing that the book actually is, you know, following someone else. And the book does this a lot, plays with what you think is happening and who the protagonist is and um, whose perspective you are reading from and who you're reading about. This is a lot of what's going on in this novel. And there are also just a lot of characters. I mean, this part of the book especially reads like a novelization of a Star Trek episode. It reads very much like a Star Trek book. And so, you know, if this were actually being filmed, if we were watching this on TV, we wouldn't have to remember any of those character names because we would we would see their faces. And so it actually turns out it is, in fact, hard to remember the names of red shirts. Yeah, which, you know, might be the point. <laughs> right. You know, I'm curious, Glenn, because you've probably read some Star Trek novels before. Are they usually licensed to use the language? Because one thing that was jarring when I was jumping into the book was trying to get used to universal union and like whatever word they use for phasers and like all this other vocabulary that's clearly drawing on something in Star Trek, but naming it differently. Yeah. So I have actually read not very many Star Trek novels. And I should say right now, hey, at the end of this month here on ATOS, I'm talking about a Star Trek novel. Really great one. I really enjoyed it. It's The uh, Entropy Effect by Vonda McIntyre, who's super important in the the history of science fiction. But yeah, anything that's got Star Trek on it is going to be licensed. And so, you know, you're essentially working for Star Trek to write these novels. And so you are using all of the, the correct vocabulary. You're often just writing about the characters. Though there are some Star Trek novels that just invent whole new characters. But for the most part, you've got novels that are, hey, this is a, this is, this is a Voyager episode you just never saw. 
saw. This is a TNG episode you just never saw. Or, you know, this is what Riker's up to 10 years after TNG and that and that sort of thing. So yeah, they're all they're all licensed products. And so you don't have to memorize all of this new vocabulary or just learn all of this new vocabulary, get f- introduced to a new world. And that's a big part of what they do, right? Is they have this immediate sense of familiarity. They can actually be quite short books because they don't have to do a lot of world building because the assumption is that you're coming to it with already that knowledge. And so, you know, you don't need to get a whole chapter that just tells you like what, a, you know, what Vulcans are or like who they are, what they're like, what they're about. We can just hit the ground running there, which is you know part of their, their real appeal and part of their success. But yeah, we should, we should talk about the way that Scalzi does that here, where this is not a licensed Star Trek book, we should look at what he does with these world elements. The one that we've said the most, right, is Universal Union, which is obviously the United Federation of Planets. But there's a ton of stuff like this. One cool feature of the fact that everything is named a little bit different, but you kind of know exactly what it is, is that it really does hammer home the comedic effect, the fact that this is a parody, right? Like, when you read Universal Union and your brain says to you, well, that's a dumb thing to call something. It's clearly the United Federation of Planets. You then have to stop and go, hmm. Yeah. Well, if I were talking to somebody about the United Federation of Planets who'd never heard of the United Federation of Planets, that might sound just as dumb as the Universal Union, which allows you to kind of comedically critique how things are also named in Star Trek um, and think about, you know, looking at this world that you and I spend a lot of time taking so seriously as, you know, you know, a made up space thing. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and some of the other things that are real obvious here, right? I mean, the ship is called the Intrepid. It's, you know, it's not the Enterprise, but it may as well be. And these are both names of real aircraft carriers, like in the in the real world that then get, you know, named after these, get these, you know, spaceships named after them, these fictional spaceships. And, and that works. And then obviously just the whole org chart of the ship, right? Like what jobs people have, the whole idea of bridge crew and then lower decks people, right? That's something just all just taken directly from Star Trek. And then, yeah, we've got all the, the technology, but there were some things that are are different though. And I think those are probably worth talking about as well. Yeah. What are the ones that stood out to you? Well, I think I think the big one for me is money. This is a world that yeah. does, has not solved the resource scarcity problem. This is not a world with replicators. This is not a world where people don't have jobs. <laughs> this is a world where money still exists, and some people have more of it than everyone else does, or than than most people do, and that matters. Uh, this is a world in which that we haven't gotten to this part yet, but there's a little detail that we get in the the second part of the story where we encounter someone who's actually worried that someone might steal his video camera, which would just you know never happen in actual Star Trek because if you want a video camera, you just have the replicator make you one. You have no need to steal one from somebody, you know, ever, <laughs> right? Uh, but that's not what this world is at all. Money matters here. I think one thing that is kind of missing from the book um, is this like utopic um, or like um, like radically reimagined future, right? Where we've solved resource problems. We're not fighting over things, not worried we're going to lose material objects. Nobody's going hungry, like these kinds of things. Those elements are not baked into this novel, which, you know, is fun because it's a Star Trek parody. But those are the things about the sitting in the future, sitting in the world of Star Trek that I really love the most. So to have them edited out is kind of strange. Um, And yeah, but you also like even, you know, Hanson, this character who has, you know, his dad is the third richest person in the universe or something is such a strange concept because you're also getting 
by virtue of there being money, social hierarchies in this different way where people are treating Hanson differently because he's of a different class status um, and how that affects the dynamics of the plot is, you know, not what I would want the year 2456 to look like if I got to design it. And the Navy headquarters are in Boston, not San Francisco. What's that about? <laughs> right. Yeah, that just seems like a slap in the face to San Francisco. I don't know if Scalzi's from Boston or something like that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is the other thing, of course, we, we said earlier, right? There is no Starfleet here. They just call it the UU or the W Navy. I appreciate that they actually just call it, you know, the Navy. I, I do appreciate that since that's obviously what Starfleet is, is modeled on. But I, I guess I was a little bit puzzled, actually, about why we have to have this character be, you know, the the son of the third richest person in the Universal Union, because that's a trait, that's an attribute for him that never actually comes to matter in the plot. But that's his characterization. And then it's really it's Jenkins. Jenkins is the one who we later discovers, you know, worried about his his camera. We also learned that Jenkins has student loans that the UU Navy is going to pay off for him. But those things don't they're, they're never relevant to the plot. So I'm interested in you know, just why you think Scalzi included that information. You know, one guess that I would have would be that it allows the, the Trek universe, the future universe, to be a little bit more relatable to us as an audience, um, which is a weird thing to say because nobody's picking up this novel unless they also <laughs> like Star Trek. So, you know, if you did it the Star Trek way, it would be relatable to us. Um, but... In that way, given that they do go back to 2010 or 2012, maybe it serves to make that a little bit more seamless so the characters aren't as shocked by what they find there. Though, of course, several Star Trek plots involve (laughs) going back to the past and the past is the present day. Like They really build in the Easter eggs so well. I think the parody elements are really um, well done in this book. But I also just wonder if... It was, I don't know, a, a fun plot device, right? Like we get this one scene where Dahl is making a phone call that's called a wave, and he's worried about how much money is on his calling card. Um, it reminds me of like international <laughs> travel that I would do 15 years ago before you could just switch out your SIM card. Um, and I don't, for some reason, that scene where he's making that phone call gave me really strong Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy vibes. Oh, yeah. And I, I wonder if Scalzi just thought it was funnier. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good point. I, I guess what what this kind of screamed to me, and maybe the whole book really, although you know you've already said you kind of came to it with a different skin because you're in a TNG rewatch, but this felt to me like it was you know eighty percent parody of TOS specifically, and TOS does not have this idea. It doesn't have replicators, and it doesn't have this idea that there's no money. I mean, we do get that. You know, the first time that's mentioned on screen is in Star Trek Four, and it's just a gag to make it funny when our characters are walking around San Francisco in the 1980s and don't know, like don't even know what money is. It's just for that to be funny, but that's a real retcon at that moment that that's not in TOS. People do have money. People are, you know, being space miners because they need to get paid. People are joining Starfleet because they have to get paid. They need a job. This is like what they do to satisfy their material needs. It's not really until TNG that we get this fleshed out idea of why there's no money. And and how people are how people are living right how people are actually getting their material needs met and so on and so this felt just sort of more old school to me. I think that makes a lot of sense, and it's 
it's like in my heart, I knew it was a TOS parody, but my brain just couldn't get there when I was reading. <laughs> well, TNG also was the first Star Trek that you ever watched. And I think that just gets imprinted on us, right? <laughs> yes, I've been imprinted. That's what's <laughs> happening here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm just sort of using the language of like, you know, a baby imprinting on, you know, a baby, <laughs> a baby swan imprinting on a, on a mama duck. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, it, we did just watch um, season three of the original series for a recent um, Patreon episode that we did so you know and tos is always in my mind it's 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 been imprinted it's (laughs) been baked in um but i think i just went into the book trying to enjoy it and see what came of it i actually think it would be really interesting to reread it and like try to really force my mind into a tos model I would actually really enjoy seeing this filmed, though I think that will probably never happen for all sorts of copyright reasons and and, uh, potential running into trouble there. But I would love to see what they come up with for a visual language to tell us, you know, which of these eras of Trek we're supposed to be thinking about. That would be a fun project. Yeah. And one thing that's probably worth saying as another point against me thinking that this is a TNG world when it's clearly a TOS world is that like, you know, from show to show, Star Trek changes around how the colors work. And in TNG, you know, the captain and Riker are wearing red shirts. It's really in TOS that it is explicitly the red shirts that die. Um, So, you know, a bit of an oversight on my part there. (laughs) Well, let's talk about some of the ways that the plot or, or plots, maybe we should say, uh, give us some hints of, of trekkiness here. I mean, time travel to era of the audience, like we've got that ticked off. Almost every Star Trek show has done some iteration of that. I do think Star Trek IV, the one with the whales, is kind of the classic, though I couldn't stop thinking about the... Um, uh, I couldn't stop thinking about the two-parter Voyager episode where they go back to Southern California in the 90s with Sarah Silverman. <laughs> I just couldn't get that out of my head. Yeah, because those are the fun ones, right? There's, right. Uh, we do other time travel, like we go back in time and there are Nazis, or, you know, we go back in time and we're dealing with, you know, social injustice, right. uh, which is what we get in Deep Space Nine or Enterprise. So it's not surprising to me that the two examples that came to mind were the campy fun ones, because this is a <laughs> campy fun novel. And uh, no one wants to hear it, but also we should not forget the time they went back uh, to see Mark Twain. Yeah, we do want to forget that. We do want... I thought about that when you were talking about Huckleberry Finn, and I was like, I'm not going to bring it up. I don't want to bring it up. It's not in the headcanon. You're right. I'm the jerk here. I mean, that's true. I'm the jerk here. But right, that comes from the TNG, I think also a two-parter Times Arrow. Yes, that's Times Arrow. And then this this business here where, where Finn gets killed which is obviously super important to the, the the plot of this of this book this this whole diplomatic envoy story this to me just was straight star trek 6 like that's all i could see in my head for the you know 50 pages or so that that plot takes up here in the book yeah and i think we'll talk about this more when we get to themes but um something that i really enjoyed as a star trek parody in the novel is the way they talk about um how there are these moments where basically it's what you would see on air. It's the part of the TV show that was filmed. And that's when the quote unquote narrative takes over. Um, That's what they call when you're being written by the writers. And then those filming parts stop and life on the ship goes back to regular. It's only during these moments that would be part of the TV show that weird stuff happens. Right. (laughs) Um, And that includes having, um, suddenly knowing something that you didn't know before or suddenly realizing that you know how to like pilot a shuttle or that you have this very specific knowledge about, you know, the like plant life on this planet or whatever it is. And that is funny because 
often in Star Trek, characters know things that don't make any sense for them to know, but yes. that just serve the plot perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it is It is magic. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff here in, in the book that explains how that functions. I mean, there's this black box that you could just put anything into and set a timer and it will just do the thing to the object that you need it to. I mean, it's usually, you know, it's the science team that's doing this, running experiments on, you know, vials of blood or like checking pathogens and that sort of that sort of thing, which is, you know, how Star Trek is able to develop uh, vaccines for, for 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 pandemics that we you know we now realize they're doing in a totally unrealistic amount of time. Right. So I think the novel also plays on this idea of time, which is something we get a lot in the Star Trek universe, is that there will be a very big and very complicated problem that is impossible to solve and like at all, really. <laughs> and then, you know, you get some sort of arbitrarily limited amount of time. Well, we only have six hours until something explodes or we only have, you know, I can you have to get it done in 30 minutes, not an hour, because if not, then the whole diplomatic negotiation will fall apart. Right. We get these like weird intense, urgent time limits, which is because we are in a time-limited show and we need to give <laughs> urgency to the plot. Um, and if you think about what would actually have to be happening behind the scenes for that to work out as often as it does, you end up with something kind of ridiculous like a magic box. Also, I love how they make fun of how there are certain people on the ship that seem to always get wounded and then heal really quickly and like never <laughs> suffer trauma from that because, right. you know, it's the main characters like hor like poor O'Brien, you know, oh my <laughs> on, <gosh. laughs> on TNG and Deep Space Nine just suffer. like there are these characters that suffer so much trauma, like way more than a person's body or mind could actually handle. But it keeps happening to them. You know, Harry Kim on Voyager, for right. example, because, you know, that's their function in the plot. Yeah, and here that's that that's the character Kerensky, the Chekhov stand-in, who yeah just gets these serious injuries, like massive burns all over his body. That then he's just fine. He has to be fine next week because you know we're not going to put him in that makeup again for the next for the next story. <laughs> he's the one who gets all the gets all the diseases, and he's always fully recovered. You know, with by next week, even though like most of us, when we get a cold. It even just takes more than a week to feel totally fine again, right? It's. Yeah, they did actually have a reference like that in the book. And I was like, don't they know we've cured the common cold by 2456? Which is also <laughs> yeah. a thing that comes up in Trek a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and all of that, of course, is definitely there's this there's not the sense that this is a better world that we get in Star Trek from TNG on. So th these are just some other places where this feels uh, you know, very much like TOS as well. I mean, you're right that like the financial stuff and the alcohol stuff and food stuff changes with TNG, but we do the original series is giving us a better world. They directly take on issues of racial injustice that they explicitly make statements that that doesn't exist anymore in the future that they live in. Um, they explicitly take on, you know, there's a lot of misogyny in the original series, but they take on gender. There's lots of lines that are like no women do things now and we don't think it's weird it's fine um so they are you know trying it is a part of the original show too yeah that's absolutely fair i guess i really just went specifically to like medical stuff right that tos medicine does not feel quite as much like magic as tng medicine does though it's still pretty pretty magical and certainly star trek 4 the one with the whales you know doc doc gave me a pill and i grew a new kidney <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. When I think of medicine in TOS, I just think of the um, medical beds in sick bay that tilt back and then you have those two blocks built yeah. into the wall that you do a little kind of like bicycle push on. <laughs> Yep, that's how they measure your heartbeat. 
why. Yeah, of course. Nobody knows why. But best way to do it. <laughs> well, so far, we've actually ignored the last hundred pages of this book, which make it a whole totally different thing, right? So far, we've treated this just like, hey, this book's a Star Trek parody, but there's a lot more going on, right? All of that has only been about two-thirds of the the book. And those first two-thirds, I think, really are this great Star Trek parody, turns into this high-concept sci-fi story about our own creations having actual uh, existence, I guess, out there in some parallel universe. But then, yeah, these last hundred pages, they really flip that perspective around. So instead of telling the story of these Star Trek characters, now we actually get the stories of the people in our world who are affected by the discovery that the fictional characters in this TV show really exist somewhere. Uh, Scalzi writes three codas here. Each of them is from the perspective of a different character, each written in a different voice. We've got first person, second person, and third person. So we're just going to go through each of those. They're these little, I mean, he calls them codas, but they're little self-contained short stories that serve really to emphasize some of the themes of this book, to guide us on how we might think about the Star Trek parody that we've just read. The first of these is written in the first person. It takes the form of a blog by the senior writer of the TV show, uh, the TV show, The Chronicles of the Intrepid. And of course, right, this guy has just found out that his characters are real and that when he kills them on the page, he is actually killing real people. So... He's got writer's block, right? And he, he wants some help. So he's asking around if anyone else has ever had their fictional characters come to life. He ends up meeting with another writer who writes books in which the characters break the fourth wall, but they're not really real people. And so she has no help for his situation, uh, which of course she's not you know, taking literally, but instead gives him some advice about confronting his bad writing, which... He does, and he does this by writing a script of one of the red shirts. It's actually Finn, the one who died here. So he writes this script about Finn talking to him about the problems with the show, right? It's this character giving him some notes. And the thing is that this senior writer has just gotten lazy and he's killing people pointlessly because it's quicker and easier than writing something interesting, right? He's got a formula that he can use. And there's some really great material here, I think, about many of the things that we, right, as, as critical viewers, will complain about in TV shows. You know, these formulas, uh, repeating the same circumstances over and over, but just changing the details. Even just using like the same parts of the ship to get damaged over and over, like the same numbers, the same deck numbers. And you know, to move us into talking about this part of the book, I'm going to actually read this bit of dialogue from Finn, then we'll just have a conversation about this. Now, here's what he says. It's a weekly science fiction show, but lots of weekly shows aren't crap, Nick, including science fiction shows. A lot of weekly science fiction shows at least try for something other than mere sufficiency. And so this bit here, right, there's, I think there's both praise for and criticism of Star Trek wrapped up in this. Yeah, totally. You know, one thing I, I notice, and maybe this is meant to be funny, is that like this this author is having a, an emotional problem related to whether or not he's going to be able to do his job and get fired and afford things, not an emotional problem related to the fact that he has murdered hundreds of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and given that, I think the last, this last part of the book with these three codas is, I think, really meant to try to pull on our, our emotional heartstrings that was an interesting choice to me. 
Yeah. So there is a lot going on here. One of the things that we've not said that we should make clear, and, and Scalzi writes about this in some of the uh, peripheral material in this book, like the, the acknowledgments, and I think there's a little afterward and so on. But Scalzi, you know, he's, he, his career is science fiction novelist. He's doing well with that. So almost all his books are bestsellers and so on. But he also has worked on a TV show. He worked on one of the Stargate spinoffs. And although he says that, you know, this is not autobiographical, this is not necessarily about his experiences on that show, his experiences on that show have certainly informed <laughs> informed this. And so, you know, one wonders, who is this writer here? Right. So this is the other thing. And w- when we talk about um, strengths and weaknesses, I think I'm going to bring this up again. But particularly this first coda felt really self-indulgent. And Scalzi actually has a blog called yeah. the whatever blog. And it just felt like this, like it just felt like a blog post <laughs> of him. Like it didn't, I don't think I enjoyed actually this first coda, but I wonder if a writer would enjoy it more. If, um, if a, if a TV show writer living in LA would enjoy it more and maybe it's just built for someone who is not me, but it, yeah, it, the self-indulgence feels very clear. Uh, yeah. I actually literally have her in my notes. Ask Valerie if she enjoyed the tone of this blog. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Right. I really, I, I, I had a hard time reading this one. Actually, it was probably my least favorite part of the book. It was mine, mine as well. I did not like the tone. I felt like I was being yelled at the whole time. And I, I, maybe that is I didn't check out his blog. I felt like that was intentional. I all I felt like this was very much a spoof. This is continuing the parody, right? This is a parody of the the trope or the stereotype of important Hollywood writer, you know, important TV writer in Hollywood. How self-involved and self-indulgent they they are. I mean, like in the stereotype of it, of course, right? And that that's that's what he's doing here. And the blog tone very much very much reads that way as well. Also, boy, that felt quaint. The idea that like you would be doing this on a blog instead of Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it just felt really disconnected from any reality that I have lived or could imagine myself living or would care to live. It just felt like the inner workings of someone's mind that is not and will never be my mind. And I didn't like hanging out there. No, I I agree. I agree. But I did like this speech that that Finn gives here and whether, you know, he is pointing out, you know, because we've just yeah, because we have just read this Star Trek parody and and parody is a lot of fun, but parody is meant to be critical. It's a form of critique, right? So there is, I think, much to be critical of Star Trek about some of these these tropes, the, the laziness, right? The falling back on using the same deck numbers all the time. All of those sorts of things are definitely criticisms that you can level at Star Trek. Uh, though I think, you know, you could level them at any franchise that has 700, almost 800 at this point, distinct stories, right? There's going to be some repetition. There are going to be some tropes. There are going to be some, some habits and so on here. But I do like as well that he's pointing out that, hey, a lot of science fiction shows try for something because that is actually missing in this book. As we we talked about, even just look at what this world looks like and what's not here, right? There actually are no social issues or anything like that being confronted in, in this book. That's not the type of Star Trek episode that is being parodied here, but that's what a lot of Star Trek is. It's why so many of us are drawn to Star Trek. And I like that that at least is being, you know, signaled here. Yeah. I mean, in this book, there's no morality. There's no mores, right? None of that is coming through. And listening to you talk about it, 
I was trying to think, okay, if, yes, there's a bunch of Star Trek that you could put into the category of like lazy, they didn't try <laughs> very hard. I imagine it is extremely difficult to pump out um, a new thing every week and to Oof. be the people acting that new thing every week. And, you know, you can't, we can't all, you know, be winners every time. But, and there are some exceptions to this where they were really trying to do and do succeed in doing cool things. But I got to tell you, I'm realizing that Star Trek Voyager just feels like a Star Trek parody because <laughs> that's the show that keeps coming to mind for yeah. me with this. <laughs> it is true. Star Trek Voyager, I think, is the of all the franchises, it is the one that has this biggest gap between highs and lows. And uh, yeah, boy, the when they became salamanders for a while. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of Voyager episodes where it doesn't really seem like they're trying to do anything. Like, they're not trying to make social commentary. They're not trying to get us to think about a difficult question that would be interesting for us to consider the morality of in our own lives. Um, And there's a ton of, like, it's the worst Trek No Babble show, which for people who don't watch Trek is is the word for the um, really uh, over-the-top technology jargon language that they've invented to use in in the Star Trek universe. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe this book is maybe a Voyager episode, not a TOS episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that's the reason we were envisioning Tuvok <laughs> the whole time for instead of instead of Leonard Nimoy instead of instead of Spock. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the the second of these codas, the one written in the second person. Yeah, so the second coda actually I think was my favorite. I'll just say that at the top. This coda follows Matt Paulson, who is the real world, our time analog to Ensign Jasper Hester, the one who I said was kind of a floater, wasn't really that big of a deal, but ends up driving the plot forward a lot later on. He's the one who does the body swap thing um, because Matt Paulson is the son of the show's producer. So to remind you what had happened in the plot is that Hester, the the real fictional character from the future, who had not been in a motorcycle accident, stays in the present day, while Matt Paulson goes into the fictional universe with the rest of the characters. And because of the way that they write the show and a bunch of stuff that they explain, what ends up happening is that after a couple days, the pers- the body that was Hester does genuinely become Matt Paulson and the body that was Matt Paulson genuinely becomes Hester, which leaves Matt Paulson in an interesting position. He was in a motorcycle accident. He was in a coma and he was going to die. That's why this whole swap took place. That's the, the bargain that they made to get, you know, the writers and the producer to change the show is to save Matt Paulson's life. But then Going from near death and all these surgeries and bruises and scrapes and broken bones to having a body that has no scars and nothing wrong with it and miraculously healed with a big gap in your memory is kind of confusing. So in this coda, Matt Paulson wakes up and starts to realize that his body shows no signs of having been in a horrible accident or about to die. His brain scans are really different. And he's starting to wonder what the heck is going on because nobody told him that the fake people are real and came from the future to save his life. (laughs) Um, So he's confused. And we follow him as he tries to figure this out. And the coda concludes with seeing that Hester has 
made a video recording, a video message for Matt Paulson to explain everything should Paulson ever kind of get close to figuring it out. And it ends with Hester kind of making this, uh, you're a nothing, you're a nobody, your dad is famous, you're just kind of floating through life, you know, get get yourself together and figure out what you're doing because this life has no purpose and we can we can do better than that. I will say that's not my favorite part of the coda again because like I can't relate to this guy. You know, I'm not really emotionally behind and cheering for like the rich son of a Hollywood producer who's not sure what to do with his life. Um so the the emotional motivational speech <laughs> didn't really grab me. But maybe this is somebody's life. Yeah, you've read my mind here. This is uh, something I plan to bring up when we get into our our themes segment. I also, though, really did enjoy this story. And and I was actually quite envisioning what this book would be like if this was the opening. Because this really feels like a cool Twilight Zone episode to me. Yeah, I think minus the speech at the end, you know, the like, get your stuff together speech. I loved this. It was a really cool story. And there was a fun mystery there. uh, And yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, maybe even a little less Twilight Zone and more Black Mirror, I suppose, right? This idea that you just wake up, somehow two weeks are gone from your memory, but you, you know you were in this terrible accident, but there's no physical evidence of it on your body at all. And things just generally seem weird. Your dad is just crying all the time and everyone's <laughs> treating you differently. And, uh, you know, some of your behavior can't be accounted for. And yeah, very, very much Twilight Zone or Black Mirror there. So even just as like a standalone story, I think this is pretty great. And I really enjoyed the prose here as well. Second person stories, I mean, people don't write them. Uh, It's hard to write a story that's addressed to you. That's very strange, uh, very difficult to pull off. I think there's really only one other story I can think of that does that like to this level. And that's a really great Gene Wolfe story, The Island of Dr. Death and other stories. And I just really was blown away by Scalzi's technical skill in this part of the book. I actually, I think this is what you're saying. So I'm just going to say, I agree with it. I think this was the best written part of the book. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, let's do the, the last one. Then we will talk about some some themes and mo- motifs here. So yeah, the last one written in the third person called the third person, uh, but though it is written in present tense. So it's not, you know, your standard third person past tense narrative. It's third person present. Here we're following one character. Uh, this is Samantha Martinez. We have not talked about her at all, but we actually do meet her briefly in the Star Trek parody part of the novel because she's the actor who played the wife of Jenkins on the show, the the one who who died, the one whose death sent Jenkins to living in the Jeffries tubes and trying to figure out what's going on here. And when our heroes traveled back or, you know, over to L.A., Hollywood, circa 2010, Jenkins asked Dahl to bring something to Samantha, this woman who I guess he thinks in some way anyway, kind of gave birth to his dead wife that, you know, she's the genesis of this person that he he loved so much. And these things that he's he's sending to are, are videos of Jenkins, Jenkins and his wife, also messages that they'd written to each other, that sort of thing. It's like, you know, a box of mementos, really. And a lot of this final part of the book is actually about Jenkins and his wife. We get narrations of the videos. We get examples of their messages to each other. Uh, there's also the, the note that Jenkins wrote to Samantha explaining why he wanted her to have this stuff and also how much he misses his wife. It's really hard reading that not to get upset that Jenkins lost his wife because it was just a way to up the stakes in an away mission 
episode, right? This is the sort of thing that I think we were wanting the writer to actually be grappling with, it, you know, comes up here from this other perspective. And it was really, I mean, it kind of made me angry, as it obviously has made Jenkins angry. And going through this stuff also really affects Samantha. She's single. She doesn't have any kids. It's totally not clear to us what she does for a living, which, you know, I'm taking at least as an indication that it's not something that she she's passionate about, not something that is an identity for her. She tries to tell her sister about these videos and notes that she's got and her sister then starts setting her up on blind dates. Uh, Scalzi actually gives us a few sentences about five or six of these. Uh, they're all hilariously bad, but in different ways. One of them is actually with a co-worker of Samantha's sister, is a man who is recently widowed and agreed to the date only because it turns out that Samantha's sister's a little, a little pushy. We get a number of different dates like that. But in this particular case, hearing about this man's wife and about his marriage also really affects Samantha. And so at this point, she prints out copies of the letters from Jenkins and his wife, and she burns them and then takes the ashes to the beach to scatter them. Uh, some of the videos were of the two of them on a beach. So it you know seems like it's a location that has some significance. And while Samantha is there, she runs into a man who thinks that maybe he knows her. And it's not a line, it's really true, and he finally places it. He realizes she was an extra on The Chronicles of the Intrepid a few years ago, and hey, so was he. But double hey, he is actually the senior writer. He is Nick Weinstein, the, the author of the blog that was the, the first person coda, but he also one time played a minor role on the show as Jenkins, and so they were in a scene together. And of course, right, Samantha knows exactly who he is because she's been watching videos of his doppelganger, also her doppelganger, some of them on a beach just like this. And that's it. That is, uh, that's their meet cute. The last line of this book is, Samantha smiles again and puts her arm around Nick as they walk. So, you know, I think as you know, Valerie, and everyone who listens to the network regularly knows, I uh, not so secretly really love rom-coms. And this is basically <laughs> a rom-com. So I know you liked the second person the best, but this might actually have been my favorite part of the book. It really, really got to me emotionally. Though I am, you know, I'm skeptical about how this works, right? Because we're we're meant to understand, and, and we get a lot of this in the the letter to Samantha from Jenkins, but we're meant to understand that Jenkins and his wife, right, who they are is informed a lot by the actors who played them and that probably Samantha really is a lot like Jenkins's wife and, you know, the writer is probably a lot like Jenkins, but I'm not sure that I buy that because, you know, maybe and I'm just as someone who writes rather than acts. I, I think that these are totally fictional people who are invented by writers. I'm just not sure how much of the persona of the actor is really going to be in there, but maybe maybe I'm just being a jerk about it. No, I agree with you. I think that it's, it wasn't my favorite part of the book, but it, it certainly wasn't my least favorite either. And it is emotional and it is, you know, gripping. I think um, Scalzi does a good job of giving us Samantha's voice. Like, I feel like I'm inhabiting her world and thinking and seeing through her eyes in a way that feels genuine. And that is cool. And she's going through some emotional stuff. So that comes through to me as the reader as well. Listeners to the network will also know that I hate rom-coms <laughs> and I am not a person easily swayed by romance and these kinds of narratives, which is also part of why it wasn't my favorite. And 
I don't get the vibe from the entire book that the actors are really giving personality to the characters. I definitely agree with your assessment that it's the how the writers are writing them is what gives birth to the, the fictional future characters' um, personalities, and that doesn't have really anything to do with the actors themselves. Um, though Karinsky seems like a, you know, uh, drunk, <laughs> a drunkard uh <laughs> Though Kerensky does seem to be pretty similar in both universes in terms of his exploits uh, with women and alcohol and his general just kind of like awareness of the world around him or lack thereof. But I do think it's worth pointing out that this coda is also, again, self-indulgent because in the first coda from the first person, we we it makes it very clear that Nick Weinstein got to tell you hard to read, hard to get behind a writer named Weinstein yeah. in Hollywood right now. Um, so, you know, I know this book was written before uh, um, all of the Harvey Weinstein stuff came to bigger um, public notice, but you know, it's there um, in my mind, but you know, we know that Nick Weinstein is Skaltzy, right? From the first coda, that makes it super clear. So that then the book ends with the writer getting his romance with this fictional TV character just felt like, okay, like, is this book for you or for me? <laughs> yeah, that was something that I didn't really love either. I, I think I would have liked this a lot more, although I, I, you know, as I said, I loved it a lot, but I think that it would have worked better if it had been someone else other than the head writer you know, I know that it wouldn't have had this symmetry. And I, I guess I'm not really sure what Scalzi's going for here. There's, in in sense of, in, in terms of like, what's the theme? What's the motif? Like, is there a message here? Because it seems like he's playing around with the idea of fate in some way. I mean, that's definitely comes up here. This idea of, you know, this is what Samantha talks to this widower about when they end up on this this date together. This This question of, is there just one soulmate, uh, you know, a soulmate's a thing. And if so, is there just one out there for us? It is a topic of conversation for them. I mean, this like literally made me cry. A lot of this part just had me actually in tears. In fact, the whole, whole lot of the back end of this book had me in, in, in tears here, but you know, him, but this widower saying, yeah, I know that definitely that's not true for everybody. I've known people who have been madly, deeply in love with a partner, have uh, that partner has died. And then they, two years, three years later, meet someone else and fall in love like that again. And he says, but that's that's not going to be what happens to me. That's not going to be my story, right? So there's variance, there's variety here, but it raises this question of, of, of fate and like, who's out there for us? Is there someone we're meant to be with? And so on. And then it seems like Scalzi's then kind of showing us that, at least in this case, that that's true, right? That there's something about these two people that means that any iteration of them in any parallel universe will end up together. And that I didn't really buy. And I don't think I like that sentiment very much either. I think it's fine. I, I could I could take it or leave it. I, I don't like overtly dislike it. And, you know, I do think that even though Jenkins is not our protagonist, he is you know, the emotional drive of the story and, you know, definitely a character that we're given the most information about. Um, so it's easier for us to feel his pain, right? And to tend to relate to that yeah. and to care about it. Um, I think actually, if it was just not the head writer, I would have felt a lot better about it. There was something just a little too much about it being Nick Weinstein. Yeah, I, I agree. I would have liked that to have been a different character, just really just anybody else would have made more sense to me that I, I would have liked that to have been maybe exclusively about Samantha's 
arc and not to circle us back to this uh, this jerk whose blog we hated yeah. <laughs> as if like it's actually turned out to be his story secretly the whole time that I just didn't that I just didn't want though you know the jerk who wrote that blog maybe he's a jerk because he secretly just isn't very happy with his life and maybe now he'll have something I mean most people who are jerks are very unhappy. I buy into that very easily. That doesn't mean that I think we need to exclusively be telling narratives from their perspectives. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So I think we have, I, I wasn't sure going in, you know, sort of where exactly my, my, my unease with the, 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 the appearance of Nick Weinstein here was, but I think we, we have nailed it. It really is just that I wanted this to be exclusively Samantha's story and it, and it wasn't, but uh, I still really loved this part. Still really, still really moved me. Well, speaking of moving, let's, uh, let's move into the next uh, chunk of our outline here and, and talk about some themes and Valerie, you're going to go first here. So uh, tell me sort of th- some thematic material, some thematic ideas uh, that, that stood out to you here. Yeah, you know, you had asked me to think about, you know, a theme that you would like me to throw out to you for discussion. And there was something about the way that you prompted me, perhaps unintentionally, that made me want to pick a theme that you would want to talk about, maybe more than a theme that I would naturally myself want to talk about. Um, And that theme is God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, which I think you want to talk about. And particularly um, the idea of this black box, this magic box that solves everything that they use in the xenobiology lab and how that functions as the deus ex machina in this book. Yeah. Wow. That so one, I mean, this makes me a jerk because the thing I picked is also something I want to talk about. (laughs) I didn't think about you at all. Oh gosh. Am I the senior writer of this, of this podcast? (laughs) Well, I mean, you are. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. And that's, this is the moment uh, looking in a dark mirror here. Well, yeah, I mean, this is really interesting. I hadn't really thought about this at all until we came into the episode, but, and this goes immediately back to something we were just thinking about this, this question of is Scalzi suggesting that even in a parallel universe is right we're going to end up with the same person and so on I mean that's that's kind of a god question right this idea of sort of fate here is also kind of a god question and yeah then we've got this black box that just does all this crazy magic stuff and so yeah there's like a maybe not so much god but just like a real metaphysics thing going on here where we could wonder what is the real world are we in it and how many parallel universes are there actually out there? Like, does every TV show have its own parallel universe? That particular aspect of the plot of this book, the idea of like, do these fictional things that we create, do we manifest real beings or real things in them? And are we making infinite parallel universes? I mean, parallel universes, definitely something that comes up in <laughs> Trek in not just in mirror universes, but in other ways. The idea of infinite realities that are born every time, you know, you yourself make a different choice. If you had made another choice, then your life would look like that. And that spawns this other universe. We get that in Trek as well. But it made me think of two Trek related things in particular. The First is the Black Mirror episode, USS Callister, which is very different um, in tone (laughs) than this book. Definitely not a comedy. Um, But this is an episode where there's kind of a disgruntled um, engineer character who is able to build this kind of computer game that you plug your brain into and then you get to be in it. And he has 
copied the DNA of people he works with and doesn't like very much, put them into the game. And then when he's in the game, he can control them. He has power over them. Um, It's pretty sinister. He doesn't come off as a good guy. But what we see in the plot of the episode is that those people that he has put in the game continue to exist and have consciousness even when he is not playing the game. So they're like stuck there forever. Um, So I was thinking of that, but I was also thinking of the Star Trek episode from Deep Space Nine, Far Beyond the Stars, where we kind of have this um, simultaneity, right? This like parallel structure that's happening where we see the entire cast of Deep Space Nine back in the 50s, and Cap- Captain Commander Benjamin Sisko is our protagonist here. He is a black sci-fi writer in the 50s who writes a story that is Deep Space Nine, where there's a black captain in the future, and nobody will buy his story because it has a black captain, and it's America in the 1950s. And it is one of the best Star Trek episodes of all time, but I think we are meant to to imagine that both all the characters in the 50s exist and their doppelganger counterparts as Cisco has written them into the future also exist. Yeah, there's some crazy circular stuff going on there. It's a lot like they're going to implode on each other. And yeah, maybe maybe our world, the world we're living in, I mean, maybe we're just characters in a TV show. I don't know who's, you know, what universe people are watching a TV show about podcasters. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't know, wherever that is, I, I hope the ratings are good. But, you know, I want to bring us back to this deus ex machina thing and and see, it, because, again, you're the writer here. You are not you're not just the person who, you know, is uh, head of the podcast network. You you are a writer. That is a thing you do um, in your life. And I thought maybe that would be an interesting theme here for you to talk about. And I don't understand these things super well, but my cursory understanding of what a deus ex machina is, I know the Latin means um from a machine god so god from a machine and i think it comes from like actual machinery um in the greco-roman um classical period that would be used to lower gods onto stage um and the general idea was that like a god shows up and then things that don't make any sense can happen to resolve conflicts or solve plot points because you can just do that what we often refer to on Lower Decks as magic hand wavy stuff. And then everything makes sense, which is, I think, the point of the black box in red shirts. Yes, that's I mean, that's exactly what it is. I I, I think that this term refers specifically, yeah, to Athenian drama and sort of the later period of that. So like not uh, not Aeschylus and Sophocles, but like Euripides in particular, I think really love to just use a crane to bring a god down in the last act of the play and sort of set everything right and kind of explain everything that didn't make any sense, like tie up all the the plot holes and and, and so on. Though, you know, Euripides still pretty great stuff, but does have some of that sort of thing going on. And yeah, that's something Star Trek is pretty famous for. And I think most TV actually is pretty famous for is just saying, ah, yeah, how do we... How do we actually resolve this plot in the seven minutes that we've got left? Because we've kind of written ourselves into a corner here or have to solve something in, in like the, even just the editing phase of the story or something like that. And just having this kind of magic that you you use to re- resolve everything or to explain things. Uh, to be honest, I think the TV show Lost is probably like the biggest culprit of all time because they didn't know what the heck they were doing. Though, though BSG... <laughs> had some issues with this as well, right? Where didn't really quite know what they were doing and then sort of have, have to do all this kind of hand wavy stuff. 
but to tie both of these things together, the thing that you know Nick Weinstein is not grappling with here, you know, as much as we wanted him to, is the idea that these are real people whose lives he is affecting, lives he's controlling, and lives he is ending. And so, for the world of the characters that the first part of this book is about, Weinstein and his colleagues are gods. They're the gods of that world. They have infinite and absolute power over what happens in that world. And I think maybe that's what we didn't really love so much about first person, that first coda, is that he doesn't seem to be grappling with that. He doesn't seem to be taking that seriously as a responsibility. And that's a really frightening thought. Yeah, especially because, you know, I think there's a way of reading the book where every time they say the narrative, you could plant the word God in there, right? right? Thing that controls our fate, our destiny. And there, while it is a comedy and a parody, there are a lot of moments where the main characters are very troubled by the fact that all of the sudden they lose control of themselves and have to do these other things. And they talk about it as the narrative taking over. And you know, it's it's pretty freaky. It freaks them out. <laughs> they, they don't like it. <laughs> the entire point of this book is that they don't like it and they want it to stop, right? And you're right that that doesn't seem to be treated with a lot of weight once we get the perspective of the writers and producers. Thinking about it this way, which I had not done before, so this is really awesome and very generous of you. <laughs> I'm about to be a jerk when it's my turn to to pitch <laughs> to you, but uh, had not. I but having not thought about this at all before, I'm, I'm suddenly really struck with just like a way of describing what this story is, which is that it's a story about these people rebelling against their god. <laughs> And confronting their God and negotiating with their God for, a, you know, a little more freedom, a little more control over their lives and kinder treatment, more merciful treatment, some consideration as as well. So, you know, it's also kind of the exact plot of Star Trek V. I was going to say, this is actually often a Star Trek plot where we learn that the God is actually some sort of higher intelligence, um, some sort of more evolved or differently evolved life form. And we have the characters pleading to it to make their lives different. This is, you know, so it it's turtles all the way down, which is, um, you know, the fun of the book, right? Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm a bit ashamed that I missed that this too was a Star Trek reference the whole time. Okay, well, um, what theme do you also have for you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it, it seemed to me that the thing that we we get really from the you know, second to last page of the Star Trek parody and then all through the codas is this uh, encouragement, maybe uh, command might even be better to go do something with our lives, right? To, to recognize that we get we only get one life. We're going to die at some point. We don't know when that's going to be. And so we should live each day as if it matters and we should make something of ourselves. Some of that sentiment I like. And there are there are some some specific bits of, of text, uh, some specific bits of dialogue, in fact, that I really enjoyed on that theme. But there are some parts of it that really rankled me. And you brought these up already, Valerie. This is the end of Matt Paulson's story, the end of the second person Coda. And so I'm actually going to read a chunk of the text and then I kind of want us to pick it apart here and talk about it in particular through the lens of Star Trek and through the lens of the better world that Gene Roddenberry envisions. 
But just to but just to refresh, right? Matt Paulson is a young man from a family with wealth, and that wealth has afforded him the luxury of being able to try out professions, a lot of different professions, really as hobbies, and then to give them up because he doesn't need to earn any money in order to have his material needs met, like, you know, to eat and have shelter and healthcare and so on. So he's really just drifting through life without any kind of purpose or any role in society. And yeah, his ensign in the show is like this as well. And that's the subject of the video that he leaves for, for Matt. And this is where I just want to read a big chunk of text. This is going to be from that video. So here's what he says. I've been drifting along for years, Matthew. I joined the Universal Union Navy, not because I was driven, but because I didn't know what to do with myself. And I figured, as long as I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself, I might as well see the universe, right? But even then, I've always just done the bare minimum of what I had to do. There wasn't much point to doing more. It wasn't bad. To be honest, I thought I was pretty clever. I was getting away with something in my own way. But then I get here, saw you, brain dead, with tubes coming out of every part of your body. And I realized I wasn't getting away with anything. Just like you didn't get away with anything. You were just born, screwed around for a while, got hit by a car, and died. And that's your whole life story right there. You don't win by getting through all your life not having done anything. And so then he goes on to say that since they've swapped bodies now, and here I'm quoting again, I have only one thing I want from you, that you do something. Stop drifting. Stop trying things until you get bored with them. Stop waiting for that one thing. It's stupid. You're wasting time. You almost wasted all of your time. I don't expect you to know what to do with yourself yet, but I expect you to figure it out. And so the way this is all framed, this is a rich person's problem. You you, you said this already, Valerie. This yes. is a rich person's problem, right? This quest for meaning through finding something to do with your time, that is only possible if you don't have to spend your time ensuring that you have food and shelter and access to health care, which is how most of us have to spend almost all of our time. Couldn't have said it better myself. And I'll bring this up when we get to the strengths and weaknesses part again. But yeah, I couldn't, you even talked about, you know, this idea of purpose and it, the book frames it as if, you know, finding a job is how you find your purpose, which is also gravely insulting to the vast majority of people who work to literally be able to live their life um, and not because that work necessarily gives them purpose or they don't have the luxury, right, of thinking of what they do as something that is allowed to be a passion, which is kind of cool in how they reimagine that in the actual Star Trek universe where nobody everybody has healthcare every there is no money there there's infinite food and stuff and whatever you need so you actually are allowed to think about how you want to pass your time um this is no longer a luxury but yeah it's just it's very unsympathetic for me um and in a weird way i think it might be also trying to hit some like romantic notes i wonder if you know they're trying to say that his purpose like if he if he stopped, you know, messing around that he would see that that woman, Sandra, his friend who he talks with a lot um, in this coda is actually, you know, the love he's supposed to spend his purpose on or whatever. But yeah, it lost me. It lost me there. Yeah, there was it just seemed kind of tone deaf to me because also there is some critique of the 
wealth that these people have that Scalzi levels. And it's mostly actually when, uh, when, when he's talking about Sandra, who also comes from wealth and is going to law school and interning right now. And, and that's presented as being really just kind of an affectation because she's not going to have to work for a living. And eventually she'll just get bored with that and, and do something else. That's the way that's presented as if that's what people of this, of this class do because they don't need to work. So all of this is really kind of an affect he says that, but then also actually sincerely <laughs> encourages encourages people to go do exactly that. And I'm I'm so glad that you you really pointed out the way that that's being emphasized as as a job, because there's no thought here that maybe Matt could use his wealth and his time to help people. Right? It's it is all about go get a job, or it's all about self discovery. Like there, there's no encouragement here to start a charity. Just go volunteer at a soup kitchen, or even just the understanding that actually, because we are living in the neoliberal world of supply side economics, and you know, have been for really almost our entire lifetimes, uh, that actually his role in society is to spend that money so that the rest of us can have jobs so that it can trickle down to us and let him have hobbies. That's actually what we need him to do. I think the word you're looking for here is self-indulgent. Right. Yes. Yeah. I guess we've said that a lot here, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have. But I, I also like that, you know, you, 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 you took the ball I had here and ran with it, which is that to point out that, right, this is actually the dream of Star Trek. The idea is that when we've got replicators, when there is no resource scarcity, when we, when, when food and all the other things that we need actually just magically appear out of this, out of this black box, so they're not actually black, then we can actually be self-indulgent. We can go on these journeys of of self-discovery. We can take up anthropology for a while because we think that would be cool. And then we can take up acting for a while because, I don't know, community theater sounds like a fun thing to do. We can take up painting because we're an android and might like to try painting. You know, we can do all of those things. And Star Trek really kind of in the background, right? Because of course we're watching Star Trek and I'm thinking specifically of TNG here. I mean, we're there to watch like the cool adventures of the Enterprise and we want them to get into jeopardy. We want things to be at stake. But the background society of that is a society in which people get to do these things, that people get to do things for pleasure and interest. And that's really the dream of all of us. That's what we would all like to do. And that's Gene Roddenberry's kind of perfect world that he's envisioned for us is a world in which we get to do that. And one of the options on the menu is be a red shirt on a spaceship if you want to. But you also don't have to do that. You don't have to do anything. And so when you are doing things, it's not motivated by need or fear. It's motivated by by passion and curiosity and interest, uh, and maybe also care about other people. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important that you bring up pleasure. There's no reason that you can't just play video games a bunch if you enjoy that, except for the part where we live in a system that brings consequences to yourself and other people by virtue of doing that. And if we lived in a more equitable world where a lot of these problems um, have been solved, like the Star Trek universe, it wouldn't be self-indulgent anymore because this is a world where you can just pursue pleasure and we're allowed to do that. And that's a cool thing. Um, So I'm really glad that you brought up that, that pleasure aspect. And maybe this is where a little bit of, of there's like a misalignment in the novel of like, I am not compelled by Paulson's emotional journey here, I guess, 
because he exists in a world that is so much like ours. If he existed in a Star Trek universe, I might feel differently. But knowing that his frivolous pursuits come at the cost of a lot of you know harm to other people um, by virtue of these economic systems is harder to get behind. Yeah, very much so. And so this is, you know, this is what the second or maybe third place where we've pointed out that maybe Scalzi's uh, is to- a little bit tone deaf here, I guess. And because I don't think that he intended for Weinstein to come off as self-indulgent as, and as jerkish as he did to us. I don't think this was meant to sound that way either, but they, they have in both in both cases. And I don't know if that's just maybe, you know, the difference a decade makes not just you know in time but in terms of i don't know my own age how i might i might have reacted differently to these things to you know at 10 years younger i don't know but but these are things that really really jumped out to me as these kind of unexamined assumptions about the world and what the world is for and our our place in it as well and and you know just to just to soften it up a little bit here i mean i do think that you know the core of this messaging here because we do get this in other places is is good right the idea that hey you only get one life so don't waste your time, which is definitely something, you know, I don't know, when I've spent 10 minutes scrolling through Twitter on my, you know, my G-jaw, and I think, what, you know, 10 minutes, I'm going to want those 10 minutes back at some point. Like, there was something I could have done with those 10 minutes, not only that would have been more useful or better in some kind of sense, but that actually would have given me even more pleasure, that if I was going to screw off, there were things I would have rather done than that. That somehow really just felt like wasting time. And so I do appreciate that reminder to, you know, live with a real sense of of agency to you know take stock of what you're doing and there's a bit of uh, another bit of text that I do want to read just to say hey here's some really great stuff I don't like to just pull things out there and say now let's complain about this let's gripe about this for a while so this is really the last bit of the the Star Trek parody part part one here that I just want to read whether you're an extra or the hero this story is about to end when it's done whatever you want to be will be up to you and only you it will happen away from the eyes of any audience and from the hand of any writer. And then we get the the narrative here that, that Dahl reports to his station because, and, and, and here I'm, I'm quoting again, because he still had work to do, surrounded by his friends and the crew of the Intrepid. And that part really worked for me. I That tears me up. It's doing it right now. That that sentiment, I really like, right? To, to live with your eyes open. Right. And, you know, again, it, as you said, to go back to the positives, this this second person, Coda, was my favorite Coda. I thought it was really great with, you know, this exception of kind of that, the context of how it was wrapped up in the end. And this idea, you're just, you know, living your life away from the eyes of a writer, right? Like outside of the gaze of anyone, but just because this is the life that you want to lead. I mean, that's freedom, right? That's really liberatory. And that is in the background of what we're talking about the Star Trek universe offering us is like this, this freedom to live for ourselves unencumbered by um, the, the harms and the weights um, of, you know, the suffering of our current world. And so of course I'm totally behind that. Yeah, that's great. Although I do think it's weird (laughs) to wrap up a novel saying away from the eyes of a writer and then go straight into a coda that is the eyes of the writer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's completely true. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. All right. So yeah, I wanted to, did want to end that segment on a, on a high note. I mean, it's, it's, it was hard for me to read that one 
paragraph they're you know page and a half or so and not be grumpy about it so i wanted to air that but i do think that overall that messaging actually is is pretty good and it it certainly made me you know take stock of what i was doing with my just you know the minutes of my days and 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 things that i could be doing that actually brought me more of the things that i i want rather than we're just you know wasting time and occupying space and i do really appreciate that but but we are we are nearing the end of what we want to do today one thing that we want to do is just just banter a little bit about maybe some silly plot related questions that we've got here and i think the question that i've really just got for you valerie is just what do you think some of these characters do now that they've been liberated and i suppose that that could be you know i was thinking the star trek parody characters are ensign characters but maybe it's matt paulson or some of these other people just you know i don't know pick one or two and what do you think they do next it's so hard to think of this outside of the structures of the hierarchy (laughs) of the universal union the w navy but um i guess the most immediate thing is that doll eventually becomes first officer captain maybe we get a movie with him later where he's the (laughs) captain of his own ship that feels like the thing that's supposed to happen and i think that's also you know um biased by the fact that being in a tng rewatch i also recently rewatched the episode lower decks which you know this this novel maybe that's also why i was thinking of tng is because of this lower decks perspective that we are first given on TNG. And that's how I got imprinted. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's this like young Riker character in that episode. um, And we're meant to believe that he's going to grow up and be our next Riker, right? Like he'll eventually get to that first officer or captain position. So I feel like Dahl is a little bit there, right? Like he's like a a decent, um, you know, male protagonist who we're going to enjoy watching later on. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll get to see him in some silky blouses and that (laughs) will make me very happy. And I guess maybe I would imagine that Hester, who is Paulson's um, analog, um, Hester quits. He quits the W Navy and uh, I don't know, goes and does some, yeah, philanthropic work maybe with all of his dad's money based on what we were just talking about. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I would really, really like that. Because obviously, I think he's he's accomplished what he wanted to accomplish here in the Navy. He saw some bits of the universe, and that clearly is not doing anything for him. It's not giving him that joy and pleasure that it, it used to. So yeah, maybe it's time to go home and, and, and do something else. Do something that's not so uh, inward-focused, right? Something that's so self-centered. Uh, do something that's about about community. Yeah, i I would, yeah, I'm not sure that would be the most exciting book to read, but I would read that book. I would read both of these books that you've pitched for sure. I think my my real thought here was really about Jenkins because uh, this dude's been just living in the Jeffries tubes for a long time, but he's, you know, f- figured it all out. So what does he do next? He can't just live in the Jeffries tubes and run this like, you know, bridge crew tracking system, which they don't need anymore now that they've got this promise from the writers. So I'd like to, you know, I don't know specifically what Jenkins would be up to, but I would like to envision that when the the widower on the date in the the third person coda was talking about his friend, you know, who who found love again, I, I would like to think that that's Jenkins in in some way that he has a chance to go to go live again, to get out of the Jeffries tubes, and to go back to some kind of society and find something find and find some joy, some pleasure, some meaning, some community for himself. 
I mean, that's all really great, but you're missing the part where he should start running a speakeasy in the Jeffrey's Tubes, <laughs> which is our tagline over on our own podcast uh, that we, because we make cocktails for every episode we watch. Uh, I feel like Jenkins should just open a bar in there. <laughs> Fair enough. I do think he actually would do that. And I mean, he's described as, you know... Well, kind of just looking like a Wookiee, I guess, or Hagrid, maybe. I don't know which, but uh, I would go to that bar. <laughs> All right, let's almost wrap it up here just by giving some kind of final assessment here. I always like to end ATOS episodes by talking about just the sort of overall strengths and weaknesses of the, the book. I also always like to end on a high note, so I like to do strengths last. So let's start with a weakness. So Valerie, what was a, a big weakness that you found in this book? Something you didn't like, something that didn't work for you? I think... You know, the the things that I wrote down are things that we largely already talked about. One thing that I didn't love about this book, and again, I wonder if you feel differently or if somebody else who's not me and hasn't lived my life would feel differently. But this, it was a lot of the book, especially, especially the codas, that felt like it was written for Hollywood writers. Um, and it was kind of like, uh, look at me, I'm writing with writing things, kind of look at all these different persons um, I can inhabit, right? Um, and these different voices and look at my literary skill. And I'm not a writer, so he wasn't writing for me. Um, that stuff I could have done without. Um, and it came wrapped up in some self-indulgence in all of the points of the book that we've already talked about. And I think that's tied to the fact that fundamentally, this book is what it says on the tin, to borrow an expression from you, Glenn, of that, you know, it feels very much like an upper class, upper middle class, white male perspective of how we would tell this story. Um, and that is how we get a lot of sci-fi stories. Um, but, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that it's told from a certain perspective and it would be cool to see something similar from other kinds of perspectives or with other kind of lived experience contexts. So that would be something that I would be, that would be a book I would be interested in reading um, as maybe a sequel. And the other thing that we haven't given a lot of space to is there is one female lead in this book and all she does is have sex with a doofus. Um, there's also only one character who has a sexuality, right? Um, and that is the female character. And I think, you know, I don't need that to be the case anymore <laughs> in books. <laughs> I think we could, you know, I mentioned earlier that I don't know if this would pass the Bechdel test. Like, I would have liked to have seen some more well fleshed out female characters in the cast and maybe have sexuality be a component of other characters, not just the woman who were meant to think is kind of swarmy and sexy and just, you know, kind of be an objectified interest. That's her role a lot in this plot is to be that, that kind of sexual object in a lot of ways. Um, which to my last point kind of ties into this, uh, you know, a vulgar way of speaking that comes up in the book a lot. And that is actually largely driven by Duval, by that character that makes me wonder how you feel about that, Glenn, because I was thinking of the TV show Veep and how um, people who work in Washington say that Veep is actually the most accurate show. And it's full <laughs> of like people making horrible vulgar jokes all the time and speaking really callously towards each other. And maybe the army is like that. So this captures something. Um, but it wasn't for me. You know, there's a reason, I guess, I'm not in the army or don't work in Washington. <laughs> 
Yeah, the the army is definitely like that. I would never want to see a transcript of of of, of things I said in 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 those contexts. But yeah, I I want to take this kind of full circle. You know, you started by saying that this felt very much like it was about Hollywood circa 2010. And I agree with that 100% because something that really struck me about Maya Duval is that I, I she's Starbuck and you know, the, in the reimagined BSG, where Starbuck, you know, is a is a woman rather than a man, as as, as the character was in the the seventies version of the show, but that she's this you know hard drinking, cigar smoking, uh, sex positive person, and that's who Duvall is. But that show, maybe I've got the order here a little bit wrong, but my sense of how this worked is that BSG was wildly successful. Everybody loved. Katie Sackhoff as Starbuck. Everybody loved Starbuck. And so that type of woman character in a sci-fi show just became ubiquitous for like a decade where we just couldn't get away from that. And to me, this then felt a little bit like a parody of that, like that this character just gets replicated in basically every show on the sci-fi channel for almost a decade. And it is this type of, 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 I don't know, feminism might not quite be the right way to put that, but this type of, of, of wanting to give agency to a, a woman, to show a woman character being as active and, and agentive as to having agency in the world, but to do it simply by making that person act like all the men characters. Exactly. That was what I was actually about to say. I mean, there are cool things. She's a strong female character. She's very competent. She is very in charge of her own sexuality. She, you know, doesn't filter herself as she moves through the world as women are often taught to do. And those things are really cool. And some of that stuff might be solved if there were other main female characters, right? But she's the only one, the only experience of kind of the feminine that we get in this book. And I think you know, I'd like to think that we are in a moment where we can move past these narratives where the only ways to give women agency are to make them act more like men or to embed them more in, um, you know, some positive and some toxic elements of masculinity. And, you know, why couldn't we have a more feminine agency driven female character as well, right? It becomes like a little box that you have to play in. Well, Duval is at the center of my main weakness here as well. You you said you didn't really love the 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 writing that was really for writers, but I actually did really love the the codas, all, all of them, even the blog, which I didn't like the tone of. I admired the technique and the skill of it. That like that was the part that was you know where, where Scalzi was being a writer's writer, right? That's the term that we use for that, and that really appealed to me because I actually did not really like much of the writing in the Star Trek parody part, which is very dialogue heavy, which it has to be. It's mimicking a Star Trek episode, but in particular, I did not like Duvall's dialogue. It was it was vulgar, it was crass, which are not things that I just like generally. But I also just thought a lot of it was was kind of bad. This attempt to write banter, which is something that I think we all love in ensemble TV shows, but it's just not what I'm going to books for. And I didn't think it was done very well. It wasn't done super bad. It wasn't like I would have stopped reading this book. I enjoyed the book all the way through. But to me, that was not very good writing. And so then when we got to the codas and I saw, I was like, oh, Scalzi, Scalzi can, he can do some stuff here. This is good. This is good writing here. But yeah, that for me, that was the the weakness was the, 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 the dialogue and especially Duvall's dialogue in the Star Trek parody part. 
Well, I think this is going to take us straight into some strengths, actually, because I have a very opposite viewpoint to that. You know, not being a writer myself, I'm I'm here I'm here in the Star Trek parody novel to have fun with right. a Star Trek parody <laughs> novel. That's what I'm here for, right? I'm not. It's easier to get into writing that is, um, you know better done. Um, It was a little difficult to get into this book because of some of the writing, particularly around the dialogue. But about 30 or so pages in, once I did get used to it, what I got to do for the next 200 pages was not read super carefully, right? I could kind of um, speed read a little bit or not read every word or every sentence because I was really interested in the plot. And there was so much here that I thought was fun and that I was enjoying. And I really did laugh a lot reading this book. Um, and it it's like, I don't know, I guess I went into a little bit of like a fun um, comedic trance for 200 pages in this book <laughs> that I really enjoyed, which really tells you I wasn't here for the writing, right? I was here for um, that. There was this like loving way that somebody was poking fun at this thing that I care about so deeply when, when you could, you could tell that he also cares about it so deeply and we were joined in that and we could all kind of poke fun at it together. And that was what I really enjoyed. And then the CODAs took me out of that, right. And forced me to, to look at something differently, to almost be reading an entirely different book for an entirely different reason. And that's not why I picked up this book. Well, I really enjoy. I really like that we've each got sort of different parts of this book that uh, that we liked. So it's a book. It's a book for everybody. Though to be clear, I did also really love the the Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek parody part. And I will, you know, as I said earlier in the show, you know, at the end of this month, my regularly scheduled episode is coming out, and that is on a Star Trek novel. And you know, I've already recorded that episode, so I will spoil some of that by saying that was my one of my strengths that I listed there was wow, this amazingly feels like. It is a Star Trek episode, and this did too, right? And and you know when it is actually a licensed Star Trek novel, like that's that's what it's supposed to do. That's the mission. That's what we're going to it for. But I think it wasn't really so much that it was light or or like a you know a beach read accessible. You know, see, these are some of the ways that we would refer to the the style of writing that Scalzi's doing in that part. I guess I, I think it was really just that the jokes didn't work for me, and I didn't like the profanity. So maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm just being an old man. No, I mean, I think that was fair and that was there for me too, but I could glide over it because I was really interested in all the other stuff that was happening and, um, you know, laughing when they would make make a jab that was like really spot on for criticisms that, you know, I also notice when I'm watching Star Trek, but then wave my hands about. And so um, maybe there was just like a, a speed and an ease with which I could kind of skip over things I didn't like as I went through that process. Um that helped me, you know, maybe get past them and see everything that there was to really, really enjoy about this book. I mean, mostly I, I genuinely did have fun. Um, he, he, he made fun of Trek in a way that was really valid and relatable and loving and, and I enjoyed it. Well, we have said on the air before that you and I have just different approaches to what we go. Usually we say to TV for, but we can just say storytelling in general, where you go to laugh and I go to cry. And and there's something for each of us here in this book. And that really, I think, for me, was was what I thought was the greatest strength was 
how much he made me feel, how much Scalzi made me feel in these in these codas, uh, giving me some lenses through which to think about the story that I've just read. In particular, the second person story about Matt Paulson really, really moved me. There were some moments there where I really, I mean, it all, all of the codas brought me to tears in, in some way. But in that second person, the character I really was focusing on was Matt Paulson's father. The descriptions that Scalzi gives to us of the way that he's looking at his son, the bits of dialogue that we get when he's interacting with his son and trying to explain away his memory loss and why his body doesn't have any damage and so on, really made me, really put me into that character's perspective, even though the story is not even being told from his perspective. And that is a real skill there. there. There was just real, real talent, real skill of writing, real technique of writing there uh, to do that. And I really appreciated that. I really appreciated the way that he was able to write so emotionally uh, in these in these codas. But I did also like this this message as well, right? And this is a book that didn't just give me some fun, didn't just give me some pleasure, some joy, didn't just occupy some time, entertain me. It did actually fill me with some meaning and gave me some some purpose. It made me think about my own life because we had this message about exercising some agency, about taking control of your life, about thinking about who and what you want to be in the world, even if what that is, is play video games for pleasure, right? But to to do it intentionally, right? To act with purpose and intention. That was a message that I was really glad to have. I'll be glad to have it every time. And so I really appreciated that this book left me with something. Something that I think that you're you're saying that we were both saying in a way is that like, none of us are blank slates here, right? I'm not a blank slate. You're not a blank slate. And neither is Scalzi, right? Like he, you know, is writing a book that is from his perspective and his experience. And so that self-indulgence is, you know, accurate, right? Like, not to say that he's a self-indulgent person, but he's writing what he knows. Um, and usually that's what makes for good writing. And you're bringing what you know to this book. I mean, you are recently a father. So it's no <laughs> surprise to me that you um, really sat emotionally with the perspective of of the father um, here. And, you know, I'm a therapist for, a, I cry for a living, you know? <laughs> so like, I don't want to do that with a book. <laughs> so, so, you know, we're all bringing who we are and, and uh, in, into, into the novel. And that gives us different ways to look at it, which is pretty cool. We get to have these long conversations. Yeah, I just, I loved this book and I'm so glad that we got to read this. Each of us got to read this and I'm so glad we got to do this episode and have this conversation together. But I think I think that's going to wrap things up. So I'm Glenn McDormand. Valerie, let me just say thanks for joining me today. This was so much fun for me. Yes, and thank you to the listener that commissioned this episode for making it possible and giving Glenn and I another reason to talk more Star Trek. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and of course, we should remind people, since it's been, you know, two hours, at least by the recording clock, uh, we should say that if this is your first time here checking out anything on this network, I you know, I do hope that you'll go find the other show that Valerie and I do together that's called Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast. We have a lot of fun over there. We usually some drinking, some cocktail inventing going on as well. But Valerie, where else can people find you on the internet and, and your other Trek interests? You can also find me on Instagram with the handle um, at plants underscore in underscore 
Star Trek, um, where I uh, chronicle the weird alien plants in the background of Star Trek episodes uh, in order by release date. Because if you hadn't picked it up yet, I'm kind of a nerd. <laughs> that is the maybe the one glaring omission in this book, right? Just plants. Not a lot of plants. Yeah, where are the plants? I mean, I am at, I I projected corn plants into the background <laughs> of every scene. <laughs> Only, yeah, well, in, a, in my mind, there was an aquarium in every place of the every part of the starship <laughs> as well. Well, when you are on the internet going to follow Valerie's Plants and Star Trek Instagram, we do also hope that you will come talk with us about red shirts. You can do that at our forum on claytemplemedia.com. You can find us on our subreddit. You can also follow the network on Twitter. We're at Clay Temple Media. As I've said a few times, at the end of the month, I am going to be back with a solo episode on an actual bona fide, uh, no trademark issues, Star Trek novel. It is the classic TOS novel, The Entropy Effect, by Vonda McIntyre, who is just a hugely, hugely important person in the development of science fiction. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Excellent moving pun. Yeah, I can't believe I did. I'm a dad now, so it's just... Yeah, that was... that. It took me a second to even know what you were talking about. I just, I just, I'm sorry. (laughs) Just to myself.